616 now on Seattle's Morning News. Coming up at 635, our historian Felix Spinell will remind us of a long-forgotten TV show set in Seattle, a detective show. I still can't figure it out. I'm refusing to Google. I want to try to figure it out. But right now, let's go to my conversation with Margaret Brennan, moderator of Face the Nation and CBS's chief foreign affairs correspondent. I began by asking Margaret about the coordinated U.S. and U.K. strikes on targets in Yemen related for the uh, Houthi attacks. This is a strike against these Iranian-backed militias to really send a signal to knock it off, stop harassing commercial vehicles transiting through the Red Sea, which accounts for about 12 to 15 percent of commercial traffic. It matters to the global economy, and it is uh, frustrating. It's dangerous. The U.S. and U.K. led the strikes on these 16 targets um, and are claiming that this is really going to have that chilling effect. It's something the Biden administration has put off doing for a while, not wanting to get drawn into any kind of regional escalation. So there will be some bracing for potential retaliation in the coming days if Iran does seek to do that. They often strike through uh, proxy forces, through these militias that they support in countries like Syria or Iraq. And that kind of uh, uh, attack against U.S. installations in the region is something we've seen a lot of in recent months. And that is why it has led to this show of force, as we saw last night. Any indication why the Houthis decided this form of attack on commercial ships in the Red Sea? Well, I mean, there's the stated justification for it from the Houthis who link it to um, the ongoing war waged by Israel in Gaza. But really, it it doesn't have a direct connection to that conflict Um, in terms of why do it. it, It's to show that. Uh, you know, to to dissuade uh, the U.S. presence in the region and the Western presence in the region and to to show that the uh, Iranian influence is there. So it's something that um, does, as I mentioned, have a a trickle-down economic impact because you've had these commercial shipping companies, Maersk and others, uh, you know, try to cut off, essentially say it's too dangerous for us to transit. We'll find a different route, a longer one, a more expensive one, rather than risk having their um, vehicles fired upon as as the Houthis have done. Absolutely. So where do we stand on the Israel-Hamas war? Well, back uh, in that region, you did have Secretary of State Antony Blinken just wrap up a 10-day tour through that area. Uh, no clear deliverables that he came back with other than uh, a promise that the UN would be looking to having Palestinians return to the north of Gaza when this conflict winds down. The Netanyahu government haven't given an exact date for that. You had one of President Biden's top Middle East advisors in Qatar over the past few days working on trying to stop the Houthi issue that I mentioned. Also mentioned uh, interest in trying to to get Hamas to release the hostages it has held. But there is real concern that this will spread as a conflict into the region around Israel. And that is why you've also seen the Biden administration send an envoy, Amos Hochstein, to try to dissuade cross-border fighting between Hezbollah and Israel. That is Margaret Brennan, CBS Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent. Shifting back to the U.S., I wanted to ask Margaret about the upcoming Iowa caucus. And I asked her whether there is any chance that Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis would take a significant vote portion from former President Trump. Well, that's what we're watching for. In Iowa, uh, Donald Trump, according to CBS polling, has been in this real uh, catbird seat. He he is far ahead. Um, But this is a ruby red state. It is a state that uh, also is, is not necessarily 
necessarily representative of the country. And certainly the participation in the caucus may be limited by the fact that it's just frankly very cold and bad weather. And so showing up at 7 p.m. on a Monday night may not be easy for a lot of people, um, even if they did have childcare and the ability to shovel out their driveways. Uh, in New Hampshire, which is the next uh, chance Republicans and some independents, others who can participate in the semi-open primary to cast votes for party leadership, that's where Nikki Haley is really uh, putting uh, her emphasis, the hope that uh, in a state like that, where you get a broader swath of participants, of voters, you, she might be able to show she has momentum enough to continue her campaign uh, and come within uh, striking distance. This is a, a race for second place, but it is something that Republicans are doing as well because they know they may need an alternative to the 45th president of the United States because Donald Trump faces a large number of legal issues to his candidacy. While they have helped him to date raise money, uh, it is not clear whether those legal issues will actually become an impediment to his ability to um, remain viable as a candidate uh, and remain on the ballot, for example, in certain states. So uh, the Republicans might need an alternative. You say a race to second place. Does that also mean potentially a race to a vice presidency? <laughs> well, one of the things Chris Christie said when he was quitting the race was um, that that was a disqualifying statement by Nikki Haley, the fact that she wouldn't take the option off the table. Um, certainly, if Donald Trump uh, were to partner with a more uh, moderate or more uh, establishment, so to speak, uh, uh, candidate uh, in that vice presidential spot, that might help to ameliorate some concerns of those who remember the chaos of his first administration. Uh, and uh, we we may see that strengthen his ability. Um, but, you know, Nikki Haley says she, she doesn't uh, fight for second. She's looking to win. We'll see what that actually plays out as in the coming days and weeks. Um, but this is going to be a really unusual election year. We haven't seen one like this before. We really haven't. We are in such new territory, not clear if the old models work, not clear if po polling is really indicative of where we are. So much could happen with these candidates, including Joe Biden. Uh, we haven't had such old uh, old candidates, frankly, uh, face off against each other. Donald Trump and Joe Biden, uh, very much on an age. Uh, a lot of question about their viability uh, and ability to excite people um, going into a very consequential year. And one place to follow the moving target during this uh, yet again unprecedented presidential campaign season is Face the Nation Sundays on CBS. One of your guests this weekend, uh, let's see, Joe Manchin, he's going mm -hmm. to be on. The Democrat from West Virginia should be interesting as he doesn't really claim a party now, does he? Right. He's saying that he has been left behind by the Democratic Party. And while he has often worked with Republicans, he is not one of them. He is looking to try to light up that uh portion of the country that doesn't associate themselves uh, with one of those um, main um, masthead parties to try to get them to participate, to come out and vote and to influence from the middle, from the center and not from the extremes. He's got a whole uh, political entity working on that, but there are questions of whether he would actually try to run himself in some form or fashion. So we'll ask him about that on Sunday. All right. Thank you, Margaret, for your time. Thanks. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. That and scratchy record means our resident historian Felix Bennell is here. He comes by every Friday morning for All Over the Map. It's a quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, a search for clues about a long-forgotten detective TV show that shot its pilot in Seattle. 
then disappeared into pop culture oblivion. What happened, Felix? Yes, another mystery. Okay, we often talk about Seattle's soft power on this show, you know, how the city's perceived from afar through pop culture like film, literature, music, and especially TV. Um, late last year when the Frasier reboot began, we talked about The Night Strangler, that 1974 spooky TV movie filmed in Seattle and its mm-hmm. long-tailed influence. Now, in researching that story, the exhaustive research I conduct for these stories, I came across some newspaper clippings about a more standard, hard-boiled, and campy detective show Shot a pilot episode here in November 1971. The one-hour pilot aired on Como, ABC, on March 27, 1972, but it never made it into a series. It was apparently supposed to be filmed in Chicago. Something happened there. It got pulled and stuck in Seattle at the last minute, so it wasn't like it was written for Seattle. The pilot was called Wheeler and Murdoch. It starred Jack Warden, who was in many TV movies um, t- movies and TV shows over the years. He was the coach, Coach Hallis in Brian's Song, for example. Um, the co-star was Christopher Stone, lesser-known actor who eventually married Dee Wallace, the mom in E.T. Warden was a grizzled, older private eye. Stone was a young, handsome one. We all know that formula. Um, kind of like on this show here. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> one problem was that the pilot got really bad reviews from TV critics, the dialogue in particular. Um, and looking at the newspaper archives, it showed up just a few more times over the years as a rerun on TV. It's not on YouTube. Scarecrow Video doesn't have a copy. I'd love to see how Seattle looks on 35mm motion picture film, especially from the gritty years of the early 70s. Most of what was shot here was outdoor locations. They did some studio stuff in L.A. Now, I also checked with the Seattle uh, archives at the city, city Hall. They couldn't find any copies of filming permits or other paperwork. And meanwhile, the two stars, Jack Warden and Christopher Stone, have both uh, long since passed away. Fortunately, the actor who played one of the main supporting characters is still alive and living in California. I spoke with him and his wife yesterday. Now, in part of our chat, I read part of one of those bad reviews from Wheeler and Murdoch. <laughs> Crammed with outdoor action and nightclub scenes, as phony as a $3 bill, Wheeler and Murdoch had one redeeming quality, the classy work of Charles Chiaffi as a hardworking Seattle police lieutenant. Correct. Wow, that's nice. Yeah. That's actor Charles Chiaffi <laughs> and his wife, Ann wow, Chiaffi. that's nice. Was she in the background? <laughs> yeah, they were both on speaker. They were lovely people. I had a nice chat with him yesterday. Charles was in Precious. some really big movies like Shaft. And Clute, he did some serious stage acting like Hamlet with Sam Waterston at Lincoln Center in New York. I asked him where the Seattle detective show Wheeler and Murdoch fits into the arc of his career. Well, it was at the very beginning of my film career, my television career. And uh, I didn't think, I don't think about it very much because it was just one of those jobs that I had to do. That's all. You know, and if you look at a picture of Charles Chaffee, you'd recognize him. You would have of seen course. him on some TV show right now. So relatable, what he said, though. Exactly. He <laughs> said the he beginning had a, of our careers. He had a great time working with Jack Warden. He loved Seattle, Pike Place Market, the scenery of the water in the mountains. And then Ann Chaffee reminded him of one more special local thing he enjoyed while he was here. Didn't you buy something, Eddie Bowers? Brown jacket? Eddie Bowers wasn't in Seattle, was it? Yeah, Eddie Bowers was founded in Seattle. The, the, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, then I bought a lot of stuff <laughs> at Eddie Bowers. The camping stuff for me and my two sons. <laughs> That's adorable. Yeah, it was really nice. They were making pasta for dinner. Really nice to talk to them. They, you know, I called them right about five o'clock last night. Now, what a fun way to remember Seattle, Eddie Bauer. I know. And then you think about Seattle in the early seventies, that greedy kind of post Boeing bust period. Yeah. Anyway, if anyone out there in Cairo News Radio Land has any insight or memories about Wheeler and Murdoch, you know, they shot all over the city, all the standard places, Gasworks Park, that sort of thing. Let me know. Email me or go to the Muckleshoot Casino text line. And let me know because. 
this is one of these things. It didn't actually didn't influence anybody, right? Because it's totally forgotten. Mm-hmm. But I'd love I'd love to see footage of it. I'd love to know more about local people who might have been involved with the production because in, in, until now it's been this kind of this forgotten thing. So well, who knows? Maybe somebody out there is a, a screenwriter. They can redo it. They can revamp it and uh, bring detectives. I back asked to Charles Chaffee if he had a copy of the script still. He didn't think he did, but I guess one of their Chaffee's sons has been collecting memorabilia from his dad's career. So if they find stuff, they're going to get in touch with me. I did I did find this uh, publicity photo on eBay. See, it's, it's so it's, uh, cool. Jack Warden and uh, Christopher Stone there so that was on ebay yeah and it's the original it's issued by abc and so probably there has to, a TV to be station. something more yeah, out yeah. there so Felix. Got, i want to see how bad it really was all <laughs> right thank you felix it is 6 49 on seattle's morning news one of the world's most iconic film score composers is taking up a special residency at seattle's benaroya hall this weekend and cairo news radio's paul holden sat down with members of the seattle symphony to dive deeper into the impact of that legendary artist on classical music Sound familiar? What about this? These are the themes of the incredibly popular Studio Ghibli films My Neighbor Totoro and Princess Mononoke, composed by Joe Hisaishi. Hisaishi returned this week to Seattle, and not just for a series of performances tonight and this weekend. Hisaishi has spent the week creating a one-of-a-kind residency. Earlier in the week, there was a special chamber performance where Hisaishi highlighted the works of other Japanese composers. In addition to that, he spent time with young artists in Seattle, hosting an educational panel and leading a rehearsal with the Seattle Youth Symphony Orchestra. These are once-in-a-lifetime opportunities for those just starting their musical journey. But working with someone like Hisaishi also leaves a lasting impact on longtime performers and members of the Seattle Symphony. So it's a pretty special week that we're having that he's coming in to not only do these symphony concerts, but to work with young people. And um, I think he's also doing a chamber concert. He's promoting music by other Japanese composers. So he's really someone that uses his platform to... I guess, lift lift everyone up. Violist Olivia Chu has been with the symphony since 2020 and performed the last time he say she was here. But above all, she's a fan. Well, I'm a lifelong fan of Studio Ghibli. I grew up watching My Neighbor Totoro. Mm-hmm. The music from that is just so iconic. And it's it's so cool to be in the presence of someone that... Like, I don't ever remember learning about Joe Hisaishi. I just, he, I just always knew who he was. And I wish I could, like, go back in time and tell my childhood self, like, hey, one day you're going to be working with this guy. She says the music from Hisaishi in the Studio Ghibli movies stood out to her as a kid. And you can't talk about those movies without talking about the scores. I think for me, it felt very different from other music that I heard as a kid. It has this kind of wistful quality about it. Um, All the other media that I was consuming as a child, so black and white, happy or sad. 
And I think Joe Hisaishi's music, it's kind of a little bit of both. It's never like, this is, it's never black and white, you know? It's always shades of gray. It's very nuanced. And I think that as a kid, I appreciated that. I think that his music is so embedded in the DNA of those movies. You can't, you can't think of those movies without thinking of that score. I mean, it's like Bernard Herrmann and Alfred Hitchcock or John Williams and Steven Spielberg. It's like they're so much a part of each other. If you do head to Ben Royal Hall, you'll hear some music from the Ghibli movies, but the performance will also highlight original work from Hisaishi. We're also doing some pieces that he just wrote as um, absolute music, um, not necessarily to be paired with a film or anything. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what that sounds like and seeing, I guess, kind of like distilling who he is as a musician without... um, the films. The show might be sold out, but the concert calendar is loaded with a wide variety of shows at the Seattle Symphony. If you're looking for a new way to experience some of your favorite songs and movies, check out the Seattle Symphony's website. Paul Holden, Cairo News Radio. Oh, beautiful. What a nice way to introduce yourself to the Seattle Symphony if you have never been. I have a brand new violin player in my house, my 10-year-old, and so this might be right up her alley. Oh, yeah, I bet she would love that. See it and inspire her. Yeah, show some love for the symphony. 716, way to make up time, Sully. Thank you for that. Coming up in today's commentary, Dave will ponder the most environmentally friendly way to have your morning coffee. But right now, let's talk about food, especially salt. Salt is one of those cornerstone flavors. You need it, especially in our culture where everything is flavor-based and we often add more salt to meals. That salt shaker is omnipresent on tables. We called up Ellie Krieger. She's a registered dietitian and nutritionist, and she writes for the Washington Post about easy-to-reach health goals. Ellie wrote recently about a new study that shows reducing salt by one teaspoon a day, just one a day over the course of a week will have the same effect on your blood pressure as taking a medication. So I asked her to go a little deeper in that study. When we reduce our salt intake, we wind up having lower blood pressure. That's the primary sort of impact that it has. And when we have lower blood pressure, then we prevent all sorts of diseases, including heart disease, stroke, kidney disease, eye disease. So it's a really impactful thing to do. And we say like, oh, just one teaspoon a day. Now, to be clear about that, one teaspoon a day is the entire sort of dietary allowance, 2,300 milligrams. Okay. So on the study, the restriction was extreme. But so I'm a chef and dietitian, and flavor is really important to me. If I reduced my salt that quickly, I would be very unhappy. But the point really of this article and of that I would love everyone to take home with them is that you don't have to do that kind of drastic reduction to see an incredible health benefit, that small steps matter. And just reducing our sodium somewhat, just getting it to the the dietary recommend, recommended 2,300 would help most of us. 2,300 milligrams, reducing that, is extreme, but how much on average is an American adult eating in sodium milligrams? 
Okay, so the recommended dietary allowance is 2300. The heart the American Heart Association for Heart Health recommends 1500. So just some perspective. The average American is eating more than twice that, 3400 milligrams a day. Yikes. More than twice the Heart Association recommendation. 90% of us get too much salt. And is it's that added salt or is that already baked into the prepared meals? Great question. So about that, the salt that I'm talking about is our total salt intake. And 70% of that comes from prepared foods, from packaged foods. So just doing one thing, cooking more at home, cooking more at home from scratch ingredients, using less processed foods is going to help you reduce your sodium right away by a, a large margin. How did we get to the point as a culture that salt is... I don't know, I guess I'll call it a cultural thing to repeat myself where you automatically sit down and you shake the salt on your food or you taste it and you don't give it a second thought. You automatically put more. How did that happen to us? It, was it a campaign by the, the big salt? I don't know. <laughs> well, so there's a couple things at play here. One is that salt is important to flavor. So I don't want to minimize that. So I have had people write to me saying, oh, Ellie, I took all the salt out of my soup and it tastes terrible. And my answer to them is put salt in it. So the thing is, some salt is important for flavor. But what happens is we actually develop a taste for salt. So our taste buds adapt to the amount of salt that we're eating. So if we're commonly eating lots of packaged foods that are very high in salt, we're going to need that much salt in everything in order to make it taste good. So our, but we can retrain our taste buds so that, and it takes about two months, a few weeks to two, several weeks to two months to retrain your taste buds so that if you start using less salt and pulling back on it, and you can do this gradually so you're not miserable for two months. Um, I have lots of tips about how to do this in a flavorful way. But if, if we start to retrain our taste buds, then a lower amount of salt will taste adequately salty and delicious. So we really have put ourselves in this position by eating salt. So the more salt you eat, the more you need, basically. And the less salt you eat, the less you need for good taste. We are talking to nutritionist and dietitian Ellie Krieger. One thing I was curious about is whether there is a healthy alternative for salt. I often use uh, coconut sugar instead of sugar. It's lower on the glycemic index. And so I thought, is there anything out there that you can replace for salt that's considered, quote unquote, healthy, that gives it that flavor salt gives it? My first line of action really. And, and by the way, I don't see this as like, oh, restrict. I see this as an opportunity, okay? An opportunity to make a change in your life that makes a difference and an opportunity to explore other flavors. So I, I create recipes for the Washington Post. I have a weekly nourish column. Um, and also on my website, elliekrieger.com. I, I have lots of recipes on there. Um, when I, and all of them are modest in salt. So even if you go to any of these recipes I create, I'm always creating a very modest, but very flavorful, modest in salt recipe. And how do I do that? I lean on other flavors. So spices, you look at your spice cabinet and it is packed with flavor, dried herbs, um, spices like paprika, dried cumin, um, Corianders, chili peppers, even fresh chili peppers, citrus, lemon. It's really interesting because acids, acids like lemons and vinegars, 
do a similar thing to your taste buds as salt does. So sometimes just instead of reaching for the salt, if you just reach for a little lemon squeeze or lime, a splash of that is going to heighten the flavor. Um, so in addition to a little bit of salt, so I use these flavors, ginger, garlic, all of these wonderful flavors, which by the way, also impart their own wonderful health benefits. So you're not only reducing salt by adding these flavors, you're also adding anti-inflammatory benefits that they inherently have. Also dried herbs and fresh herbs. I use them all the time. So you lean on these instead of leaning on salt, then add a little bit of salt because you need some salt for good flavor. You And a little bit of salt will tie it together where you can still have lots of flavor and stay in that range, in that healthy range for sodium. That is Ellie Krieger. EllieKrieger.com is where you can find a lot of her recipes. She also writes for The Washington Post. I called her up because I just found her approach to staying healthy so um approachable. <laughs> Does that make sense? And uh, so what I did last night, as it turns out, my 10-year-old is sick. Uh, we're not sure what's going on. Negative for COVID, negative for flu, negative for strep, but she's feeling bad. And I happen to have the uh, carcass of a rotisserie chicken still in my fridge. We had picked it pretty clean of meat. And I love making uh, chicken noodle soup with the remnants of the rotisserie chicken. It's so cheap. And then you can make a hearty bowl of soup out of it. And so I decided, instead of my usual approach, which is to layer salt every time I'm sauteing the onions and the carrot and all that to go with her advice. And so I used, uh, instead of the traditional chicken noodle soup ingredients of carrot and so I added all that, but I added fennel. I added turmeric, ginger, extra garlic. I layered some lemon in there when I was sauteing the uh, veggies for it. I used lemon to deglaze and I really, and I, I, I served it to my family. And I, my husband he, and both of us were very good at tasting foods. We love going to restaurants together, all that. Could not tell. There was no added salt. Now, I realize the rotisserie chicken is very salty, but I thought if I didn't add any more, would it still be good? And it was. I wish you'd brought some in. That would have been a nice taste test. Especially I did oh. for lunch. Do you oh, want to taste yeah. some? I'll share it with you. With how cold it is in the studio. I yeah, know. Yeah, nice. the heat's broken in the studio. So uh, with that, if you do want the recipe that I did last night, if you want to try it for a nice cozy weekend as the temperatures get down into the teens and 20s, just reach out 888-973-5476. Text me and I'll do my best to get you that recipe. Is the king tide my fault? This morning's commentary brought to you by Wafed Bank. The Washington Post has finally answered a question that I assume many of you ask yourselves every morning as you listen to this broadcast. Is it environmentally responsible to make your morning coffee with a single-use coffee pot? Many of you are staring at the Keurig, wondering, should I do this? Or am I the reason the king tides are so high? Well, good news, coffee podsters. According to the Washington Post headline, single-use coffee pods have surprising environmental benefits over other brewing methods. The article quotes a study from the University of Quebec, which finds that the old-school filter coffee method can create one and a half times more emissions than a pod machine, even when you account for disposing of all those plastic capsules. They've got it figured down to the gram. Pod coffee emits 180 grams of CO2 per cup. Old-style filtered coffee, just over 250 grams per cup. And the most responsible method is instant coffee, only 160 grams of CO2 per cup. And this counterintuitive result is because the University of Quebec is tallying up the entire cost of the coffee, including water, electricity, manufacturing, disposal. And since the pods are precisely measured and the machine only heats enough water for one cup, it's more efficient. 
It also matters how your electricity is generated, of course, and whether you add milk, because then you have to add the footprint of the dairy cows and the milk trucks. But the researchers are still leaving out one important calculation, it seems to me. The amount of mental energy we have to spend second-guessing every single thing we buy, eat, or drink. 20% of the body's energy is used by the brain. And I have to believe that trying to decide what's sustainable is pushing that even higher, which is also going to generate more carbon. In my own case, each day I have to choose between the single-use pod, the multi-use basket when I grind my own, the instant Italian espresso, the loose tea, or the tea bag. And now I'm wondering whether we should have a hot drink at all in the morning. Maybe just orange juice. Or even better, just eat an actual orange. Unless it dribbles on your shirt and you have to wash it in hot water heated by electricity from a coal-fired power plant. Or it leaves pulp in your teeth and you have to buy extra floss, which then ends up in a landfill. I'm just terrified that one day there'll be a knock on the door and it'll be Greta Thunberg with a subpoena. So maybe the responsible thing is to just settle for a morning glass of tepid tap water. Or being that it's January in Seattle, just stand outside with your head tilted back and your mouth open. And now it's time for the Daily Dose of Kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Claire Howell, an aspiring waitress, actress, it should be in New York City, is grateful for the family she recently waited on. They were going to the popular Broadway show, Merrily We Roll Along, starring Daniel Radcliffe. She told them how, oh, she'd love to see it, but it's a sold out show. After they left, Claire picked up their bill and she saw they had left a $500 tip and the note Go see Merrily We Roll Along and sit in the orchestra. She did and told ABC News how grateful she is for such kindness. It was just an incredible show, but the most genuine, selfless act of kindness. They didn't even wait for me to say thank you or to see my reaction. They just left. Hopefully I can see them again and say thank you, but it just shows how good people are, and I will think about it for a very long time. The generous family left before Claire learned their name, but she hopes somehow to thank them for their generous tip. I'm guessing, though, since she was on ABC News, that they likely they saw it by yeah, now. Yeah, they probably heard. How nice. That's just wonderful. an extra $500 sitting there for her just because she wants to see a show, and, and they also like going to see shows. I love that kindness. from the 62-degree Carter Subaru Studios. What is, what is going on? I come in here. Colleen, you have a puffer on top of your heater vest. I got Sully and a Scully and a hoodie. What in the world? Is, is there hazard pay being paid There's, around here? The heater's broken, so our studio is at a balmy 62 degrees. And uh, so, yeah, we've got the chief engineer on it. I warned you before stepping in to wear a coat, but uh, you said you like it cold in here. I, I like it cold, yeah. period. You run hot. I do, too, but this is this is too much. I like it. So when, you, when you're at home, don't you like for it to be a chilly enough mm-hmm. so that you can grab a blanket mm-hmm. when you <laughs> when you get into your your bed and you just rub your feet together <laughs> and you're warming up your sheets? Yeah. I still have the fan on. Wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> when you say me too, when you say rub your feet together, like your own feet, because my course. wife don't want me rubbing my, my feet on hers. <laughs> no, nobody scratch, wants scratch, somebody scratch. else's. Do you have uh, crusty, dusty feet? I'm going to get a pedicure this weekend. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, we really are talking about, though, not just our, our cold weather plight in the studio, yes. is uh, the rumors swirling. So the, I'm just going to bait you here, and then you can give me reality. Mm-hmm. I thought, why can't Kaylin DeBoer go to the Seahawks? Why is Kaylin DeBoer looking at Alabama right now? Because 
Alabama is a really good job. If, if I would have to say like top five jobs in just all of football to have, yeah. um, I'd say Alabama might be top two. But it's in three. Tuscaloosa. It's interesting you say that. But when you're in Tuscaloosa and you're the head football coach, you're basically the president of Alabama. Oh. You're the CEO of Alabama. You it goes it goes governor, it goes no, it goes head coach governor and then everything else in between. So it's not every, you know, every, I feel like a lot of college football players, their goal is to get into the NFL. Is that not the goal of most coaches in college? No, it is not always the goal. Interesting. No, because sometimes you don't want to go and deal with the um, players that make a lot of money. So for an example, it's kind of tough to coach when the person in your position room makes more than you. I see. Right? You know, In our society, we tend to Sometimes disrespect people that make less money than we do. That's true. Unfortunately. But we love our hometown heroes and Kalen DeBoer coaching whatever yeah. position on the Seahawks. Mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, he'd be beloved there. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I want to go back to something that I kept boring you and Dave with every single time we would talk about Kalen DeBoer. What's that? I would always say I've never met the man, but the one thing that I love about him is the culture that he's created, the way that they win the last six or seven games, they've all come down to one score. It is something about this dude. This dude has a very special team. Even so, during the national championship game, when there was that flag on the number 73, the mm-hmm. offensive lineman, I told you I loved how the players came to him and mm-hmm. dapped him up. I said, man, I have been just praising mm-hmm. Kalen DeBoer. And so I said two months ago, Hey, UW, get that man a $100 million contract. Yeah. Give him a contract. This dude is special. Keep him here. He is a very special coach. And I, in my opinion, I think the football guys over there, the experts over in Alabama, they probably got had one conversation with that dude, and he probably gave them one little plan he has, and they was like, <laughs> oh, baby, you ain't going nowhere. What you want for dinner? Yeah, <laughs> you know what right. I mean? So what, what happens now? Does Alabama just keep increasing the price, or does UW seriously fight for Kalen? Can we do that? I, I think at, at this point, it's not just the money that you, he's going to make there. It at the school. It's everything around it. It's the cost of living. It's the you guys got to remember Nick Saban. When you go to the state of Alabama, you go to that state. Nick Saban owns all kinds of car dealerships all throughout. Oh, I see. Like it is. It is not just. It's a lifestyle. Huh. It's everything that's in, encompassed in that. I'm. I'm sure that dude got over there. And they didn't just make him feel good. They probably made the whole family good, feel good. Well, your uncle, well, your auntie. How about your second cousin, third cousin? You know what I mean? What's their names? We're going to put their names on the back of a jersey. Good time of the year for Alabama, too, in, in terms of uh, it's real cold here. You go down to Alabama, it's feeling a little nicer, a little warmer. It's mm-hmm. looking looking a little glow. Are you I, trying to get Kalen to leave? Come on now. No, you know, I, I want to say something that I have been guilty of over the last, let's say, five years. I'm always sometimes judging states, sometimes based on their governors. Mm -hmm. I'll admit it. Not lying. Oh, that state? Oh, but what about that governor? You know, when I go to these states that I talk about, the last thing I think about is the governor. It's easy on the outside to judge it. I'm telling you, these states. Once you get there, though, people are good people. Ooh, good people. Mm -hmm. And, And 
Y'all know Southern hospitality is a thing. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So how many times do you, are you in a grocery store, I don't care who you are, and somebody just walks past you and doesn't say a word? A lot. Every, yeah. All the time. In the South? You get that goo. Oh, come on here, sweetie pie. How you doing? Yeah. How, what, what can I get for you today, hon? Oh. I mean, that's that, that's that love. Well, you know still, I mean? we've got a lot going for ourselves so, here. So don't you, sell Alabama too much. What are you trying to do, G? Okay. Come on. Don't you want Kaylin to stay? But do I, you want me to? But they told me that that Seattle, they had headlines. They said Seattle is, so Seattle's not dying? It's not? It's good. We good. <laughs> We good. Okay, we, oh, are we good now? So so some of the same people that were saying Seattle's dying, now Kaylin DeBoer, goes, no, 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 Seattle's a great place. <laughs> Make up your mind. Make up your mind. I know. Love y'all. See y'all. You make a great argument for Alabama. Well, on to other uh, mishaps with vehicles, this being the uh, Boeing jet that has been grounded, the MAX 9. It appears the cozy relationship between the FAA and Boeing appears to be unraveling in the aftermath of the door plug blowout a week ago tonight. So, Chris, bring us up to the latest on the investigation. Well, I'll get there in a minute, but I wanted to kind of focus on the on that cozy relationship. It's something that has been long criticized by outsiders uh, that the FAA and Boeing work too closely together and uh, maybe that chumminess might have led to some recent issues with the 787 and with the 737 MAX certainly because for years the FAA allowed Boeing people to sign off on work that used to be done by FAA employees. Right. They, they were independent. You know, they're like, okay, you're in charge of, say, you, you overlook this, you sign off, okay, good, you get the FAA certification. And critics to say that's kind of led us to where we are today with those manufacturing defects, production issues, and things that we've seen. Uh, and the FAA started to take some of that back after those first two deadly MAX crashes. And today it is announced that it is looking at options to increase the oversight on who is signing off on safety and manufacturing and possibly finding an outside third party to oversee what Boeing is doing to make sure that they're they're doing right by their passengers, certainly, and by for their customers. The agency announced today it will audit the MAX 9 production line and its suppliers to evaluate compliance with approved quality procedures and promised increased monitoring of the MAX in-service events of any kind and an assessment of safety risks and the delegated authority around oversight. So here's what we we know about the accident after a week. The NTSB is looking at the assembly of the door plug and whether it was installed correctly and checked before it was put into service. A quick question. Would that door plug, at least the bolts, would that be installed by a human or do we have yes. robo- robots doing no, that? No, because point? of okay. the way this so is. it would have I mean, been human error. Yeah, the fuselage okay. comes over from Wichita and uh, they, they, they're assembled here because as we've talked about, these are basically extra emergency exit doors mm-hmm. that they don't didn't use, but they're manufactured with a hole there as if to put in a, but they, since they're not used, they put in this plug. Um, and the air current, actually a, a really good insider newspaper uh, a publication run by John Ostrauer, really good aviation reporter, reported yesterday the Alaska Airlines actually pulled the panel on the door plug on the right side of that same plane before the flight last Friday night. And tightened bolts mm. on the right, but they didn't do it on the left for some reason. Uh, and the left side was the side that blew out. Uh, United Airlines has also reported that it has found some loose bolts on some of its Max. So, in addition to this FAA audit, the agency has opened a full investigation of of the accident, and this will likely 
delay the return of MAX 9s to service. All flights have been canceled through at least tomorrow, but now that was done by United and Alaska yeah. uh, under the auspices of the FAA. And now with this, the FAA, I mean, they came out yesterday and said, listen, Speed is not going to determine when we're getting these back in the air. It's got to be safety, and I think they're going to really start going up Boeing's backside with a fine-tooth microscope to see what they're doing production-wise. What an image you just painted there. Well, I mean, to, to try to get some of this, you know, nailed down and put Good. to bed. Because the last thing you want is uh, the safety of the flying public at risk or the confidence in the safety of your airplanes. Well, I think that that's already being etched away given the two crashes and now this door plug. So thank you for the update, Sully. We will continue to follow this story as it is far from over. Sully, 8.15 now on Seattle's Morning News. Coming up at 8.35, Felix Bennell stops by, helps us remember a long-forgotten detective TV show set in Seattle, and he needs your help. But right now, we once again bring in Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich. As we have throughout the week, he's covering the new legislative session in Olympia. And Matt, you have an issue that has generated a lot of emotion in a hearing room. Good morning, Colleen. Yes, uh, I want to bring that up. We like to do deep dives at this time on bills rather than just talk about it for 30 seconds. So today we're going to talk about rent stabilization and state lawmakers in Olympia yesterday heard emotional testimony delivered in a packed hearing room regarding capping rent increases to 5% annually. Now, House Bill 2114 would also put limits on late fee increases and provide other tenant safeguards. Representative Emily Alvarado, she's a Democrat from Seattle, told the members of the House of Representatives Housing Committee what the bill is and what it's not. This legislation is not rent control. Under this bill, rent increases are capped at 5% every 12 months, but when a person voluntarily vacates a unit, the landlord is able to reset the rent. Now, the state legislature banned rent control in 1981, but that hasn't stopped attempts since then to put some sort of cap on rising rates. We all know about that and heard about the housing shortages. They're they're calling this legislation rent stabilization, not rent control. Now, a similar measure stalled during the 2023 session earlier in the in the in 2023 and never made it to a floor vote either in the house or senate so alvarado made some changes landlords told us that last year's bill was complicated combining the banking of rent and pegging to cpi it was hard to track and it was not predictable that's why we have a flat five percent cap in this legislation And there are some exemptions, like under the new bill, landlords with new dwelling units under 10 years old are exempt from the cap. Now, Mike Parker of Bellingham calls himself a ma and pa landlord. He supported the legislation. As a landlord, I support this bill because I know that a 5% cap on rent increase is more than fair. But Riley Binge, who represents the state's 20,000 realtors, did not support it. This bill will force housing providers to make difficult decisions like whether to keep their homes for rent or remove them from the marketplace. Then you Moreover, have Zach- it threatens to limit and discourage future investments in housing creation that we so desperately need. Sorry, I stepped on myself there. Then you have Zach Brandon, who is a senior fellow with the Jack Kemp Foundation in Washington, D.C., who gave a preview of a study he did on that 5% increase, a rental increase cap that will be released later this month. 
we found is that a 5% cap on rent increases in the state would reduce new housing construction in the state by about 5%, reduce maintenance spending on existing housing by 3%, and reduce the total value of housing in the state by between $1.4 billion and $1.7 billion, and reduce the total property tax revenue in the state by about $20 million. So those are the bunch of numbers that were thrown out in the hearing, uh, which, uh, by the way, was packed. It lasted. They took testimony for an hour and a half, and there still was more people who wanted to talk about it. So, and a lot of people had a lot of emotion. There was plenty of it. All of it asking for a cap to be in place. Now, Monica Soweta has two kids, rents a two-bedroom duplex in Vancouver for $1,900 a month, and said anything over a 5% rent increase would create an undue hardship. So I am a human being not a dollar sign who wants to thrive just like you do. Uh, we want the housing security like all of you have. I'm sad and scared and I'm asking for help. And Carrie Burnside told a story about her brother. My brother solves his severe stress brought on by housing instability by committing suicide. I wish that my story was unique, but for far too many fans. Families in Washington, this has become commonplace. Mm, That is sad to hear. Yeah, just a couple of notes about the bill, Colleen. For the first 12 months of a tenancy, the landlord cannot increase the rent. So they can do it 5% annually, but in that first year, they can't can't raise the rent at all during that first uh, year. Now, tenants also have the right to terminate rental agreements if the rent is increased 3% or more. And there are several other tenant protections, such as limits on move-in fees and security deposits, and finally a cap on late fees at $10 per month. So the Housing Committee on Housing will vote on this bill uh, on January 16th, and if they approve it, then it would go to the House. There's a similar bill in the Senate being heard today, almost word for word. Uh, so this is going to be a it's a big one of the big, big issues. The desire year. to have rent stabilization is uh, not it's not something unheard of. We just had voters in Tacoma pass uh, what it amounts to rent stabilization as well. How does this bill match up with what happened in Tacoma? Well, this bill is uh, similar that you know you raise a good point whether this would supersede what's happening in Tacoma uh i have not if there's a, what's known as a preemption preemption uh status on this mm-hmm. that's something i did not see in the bill i didn't read it maybe that closely enough to look for that but uh i don't know what w- which would supersede the other Tacoma or the state but obviously the state has typically uh, authority over all the other cities if mm-hmm. they pass it. And and when you were in that hearing room, what was the makeup of those against this bill and the makeup of those for it? Well, it was it was a mixed. I think you had a lot of you had some landlords in there who did not like the idea because they say, hey, you know, the the price of running a rental can exceed more than 5% every year just based on inflation and whatnot. Um, and so a lot of the landlords were older that testified. Uh, this, the, uh, the, I'll call them the policy wonks were all young and using, talking about their, those numbers. But primarily the renters were older, um, of lesser means and were very passionate. Obviously they provide all the passionate, uh, testimony 
in this particular hearing. Yeah, I, I just because <clears throat> you, you, when you say of lesser means, obviously low income or at least on that threshold of, of low to middle income. And I think about my own experience as a renter, which was a prime most of my life. I was a renter and I've always you know, been lucky to have stable uh, employment, uh, to receive annual raises, to advance in my career and reach a, a comfortable income. And yet while I was in that, you know, the middle or middle to upper income, I still had to move every year to two years because of rent increases. So I don't even think this is a low income issue. It is across the board. Nobody can afford an extra four to six hundred dollars in rent increase all in one go. And that's right. what and happens. I think, I think real quickly the final uh, wrap it up is that the it was what was interesting I found was the stats that people showed uh, that were against it basically saying Yes, this is going to help the renter, but it's not going to inc- improve the housing supply because landlords are going to say, hey, if I can only raise it more than 5%, I'm just going to sell my property or or you know, or not rent it out anymore, and the housing supply will go down because of this. It'll help the renters in their current place, but future renter, uh, renter availability, uh, units availability, it'll go down. Then how about something in the bill that stops these huge corporations from snapping up all of these apartments and housing? And, you know, I mean, I think that that plays a part in it, too. Is is there anything in there that says, hey, if you own 400 units, you have to only increase it by two or three percent because you're a huge corporation. That's a good point, and it's not part of this bill. All right, maybe they're That'll listening. be next time. You know, we don't. There's no guarantee. This has come around before. Yeah, there's no guarantee it'll make it to the finish line this time. All right, thanks for updating us, Matt.